I do all the time. All right, all right. Test, 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 test. All right, you're different than me. I do it so that it saves and then I have backups. You're... Great minds do not think alike. Um, Oh, I do have to... Okay. I have to pull something up before we talk because I want to have it ready because I do... um, Before... Okay, so don't talk. Well, you're allowed to talk to me, but I don't want to know what you have to say. What is in here, by the way? What is this? That was something we bought for the dinner show, but I don't know what. I don't know how to open this. Now I'm afraid I'm going to break it. Oh, got it. Ooh, oh, it is. It's a little cryptex. Oh, here it is. So good. Okay. Got it. Okay. A cryptex. Cryptex. It's also a nice box. Okay, wait. Oh, what I is gotta the... stretch my back. Oh my god, do you know what was. <laughs> Oh, 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 I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Oh, 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 oh. Ow, she's really hurting. Ow. Oh, no, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Oh, 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 oh. If you guys can guess what that is, you get a cookie. Chocolate. A Milano. A Milano. Ooh, what was your favorite cookie? It was like the treat. Was a Milano like the treat cookie growing up? Yeah. I would eat a Ma- Milano like a fucking monster when yeah, it was at my house. Definitely. I. You know what else I used I to do? I scraped the whole thing around. I it. Used it was to be disgusting. Like, Mom, I can cook for you, and I would take a store bought store bought pie crust. Take a yo play. My mom liked key lime pie. Take a yo play key lime flavor. Dump it in. Put Cool Whip on top, freeze it, and I'd be like, I made key lime pie. Boom. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you not cook the dough? No, no, no. Get a grip. (laughs) (laughs) Grow up. (laughs) Question, did your mom like this? I'd be curious. Call in if you're my mom. Call in. Call in if you're Ray Dell. Call in. Or if you feel like you know the answer. Or you feel like... Even if you're not her. I feel like she... How old were you when you made this? Oh, maybe... Maybe eight, nine. Maybe she was like last year. <laughs> it's her birthday cake. It's a good shortcut. <laughs> Here's a hack for you: freeze, freeze some yolk. By the way, I would crush a key lime pie yogurt. Those things were yeah. fucking good. Yeah. They were incredible. They make yogurt better now, though. Even they make, better. Oh my god! Do you remember? Um, I don't know if anybody had the whips, the yo play whips. Do you remember mm. those? I'm just like imagine. I'm just remembering it. The Yoplait whips was just air and they would charge the same, if not more. And it just was like, here's how funny marketing is. It was in the same like cylindrical sort mm-hmm. of like pyramid vibe, romb- rhombus shaped mm-hmm. um, cylindrical. Nice use of the word rhombus. Thank you. Uh, shape. And it was, I remembered like the whip, it was just like a little mousse. It was so good. But you know, like it took them like they need, they like, oh, we were such idiots. And it was like light whipped. So it was less fat, but it was Damn fools, all of us. All fools. So speaking of food crimes, we had... um, Food crimes, please. You're going to love this. Tell me the food crime. We had a dear reader uh, write me the funniest thing. Uh, This is Katie. Uh, Katie wrote us, um, sent sent me this that I think she found it on Instagram, and it just slayed me. I'm going to read this to you. Guys, this is the true crime story of the decade. Yesterday, a friend told me what might well be the best story I've ever heard. Oh my God. She had caught the train in from Frankston. And while she was waiting for the train to come, she noticed a man sitting down on the platform with a bag of fish and chips, but he wasn't really eating them. He was just sort of letting them air. This attracted a few seagulls who began to circle the platform. And instead of shooing the birds away, the man offered them a few chips. He tossed one a foot or so away from him. It was like he was beckoning them to come closer. He kept doing this, eking the chips out slowly until there was a big group of seagulls in front of him, 15 or 20, a tiny army. He'd throw them a chip every now and then, just enough to keep the birds interested, but not enough to sate them. It was frustrating. They were getting angry, squawking. It was like he was rearing them up for something. Then the train came and everyone got on, but the man stayed on the ground with his chips. Just when the train was about to leave, It happened. Right before the doors closed, 
the man threw the entire bag of the fish and chips into the train. <gasps> the entire flock of seagulls followed the bag and the doors closed. <laughs> inside. Oh, oh, oh my God. Oh my inside God. the train, pandemonium. <laughs> the next train stop was five minutes away. Machiavellian. Machiavellian. Is it Machia or is it Machiavellian? I don't know how you say it, but oh my God, that guy guy has a mustache and he is frequent twirling it. He is twirling on them hoes. I just love it. My God. And I love the guy sitting there being like, I'm getting them ready. It's so evil. But it's it's first degree is the thing. Like it's first degree. He's had a it is premeditated. The fish and chips. It is the definition. And he had a plan for the fish and chips. He didn't even eat them. He didn't eat the fish and chips. If you see somebody with fish and chips not not eating eating them, they're a fucking criminal. Run. That's a criminal you're looking at. That is a crime. In and of itself. In and of itself. Whether or not you're gonna Especially in a place where they're calling them chips, they're not calling them fries. You know those fish and chips, they'd be good. That's (gasps) legit. That's legit. I could not. I died when she sent me that. I was like, wait, should I do that as a whole story? If I was like, Carrie, here's my story this week. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, also, we have another out of date update. Um, One of our listeners went to the school of the principal. Yes. That is wild. I know. That is insane. I know. Yeah. I was asking her about it. I was just like wondering. I don't know if, if, I mean, I, I suppose her identity is protected because you don't know who she is, but she was saying it was a really tricky time. And I, I, I mean, because I, what she was saying was that it was a divided student body, really. And that Whoa. half the kids were, were protesting and being like, he needs to step down. And half the kids were wearing things on their caps at graduation that said they supported him. And that it felt like a lot of pressure to be in one of those teams right yeah. and I was I was thinking about that and what high school is like and how much um you think you know everything in high school and how much yeah. you absolutely even if you don't feel like you have to front that you do totally there was something about like in high school you wouldn't say things like well I don't know anything about that or you wouldn't say things like I don't have a dog in that fight everything was a little like you'd you'd you would pick a side in everything and you'd pretend it was the most important side yeah. you'd ever picked yeah. You're like trying on passion yeah. all the time. Yeah. And so, you know, if you heard of a political dispute, you would absolutely not be a person that would say, I see it both ways. Right. You would choose sides. And wow. then you would pretend it was the most important thing. So I'm not saying that everyone was affecting that it was important to them when it wasn't. But I am saying that that's a tricky time Uh Passions are running very, very high. Yeah. And to be so young and watch all these kids dying around you, that is also just unprecedented. Totally. Yeah. Oh, my God. Really crazy. Um, To bring it back to lighter things, because we talked about fish and chips, I did want to tell you that the other night I was talking with Matt's family about fish crimes and Matt's mom was recalling that she, when she was 10, like went to a friend's house who was leaving for a week. And the friend was very serious about her goldfish and showed Matt's mom, like, this is their food. And we'll feed them while I'm gone, right? And she said, yes. And she had separated their food into what uh, Bronwyn described as little origamis. Like, here's Monday, here's Tuesday, like folded it into these papers very lovingly. And... Bronwyn remembers dissociating from the conversation and thinking, I don't think I'm going to actually do this, probably. (laughs) And then she didn't, and all the fish died. And then she saw her, like, years later and was so, like, embarrassed where she had to be, like, she was, like, avoiding her at a supermarket as a grown-up because she was, like, I killed that woman's fish. And then when she saw her, though, she was, like, oh, I was trying to avoid you because I thought maybe you're still mad that I killed your fish. And the woman was, like, what? And, like, didn't remember it at all. And she goes, I was trying to avoid you because of the fire, the explosion. And everyone's like, what? And she's like, I exploded the oven and, like, burst flames onto your face and burnt off your eyebrows or something. And she was like, oh, did you? And it just went to show that, like, neither one 
neither one had held on to that. I can't wait for that. the fish crimes, law and order-ish fish crimes. Do you want to hear mine? <laughs> dun, 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 Do you want to hear dun, my dun, fish dun. crime? In New York City, there's a dedicated detective. In Denver, growing up, going to a neighbor's house with a bunch of kids, and the neighbor had a koi pond. They also kept, like, goldfish mm-hmm, in, and they mm-hmm. were like, take as many as you want to the kids. And I took, like, 10 home. And when I got home, my mom was like, you took 10? You know, you could, Quinlan, you could have taken like two fish. You took 10 fish. She was kind of like eye rolling it like, are you kidding me? Like, now they're going to be in this like tiny tank and there's 10 of them. This is like, and I'm not going to go buy a giant tank. Like, this is so ridiculous. And I could tell she was disappointed in me and I really wanted to fix it. So at some point I filled a cup with like you're a serial killer, a bunch of the fish. And I went back to the neighbor's house and I didn't want to ring the bell and admit that like my mom thinks I kind of took too many fish or anything. I didn't want to bother them. So I just stood outside their fence where I thought the pond was and I threw the fish over the fence <laughs> into what I imagined must be the pond on the other side. I was like, this is line. This feels like it's lined up like accurately. And <laughs> Then when I went home, I was like proud of myself. And then I had to tell my mom I did that. And she was even more disappointed. disappointed. Yeah. She, she was like, like, you did what? <laughs> oh, Quinlan. It's just like could not win in that house, you know? It's really trying to make her proud. Really trying to do right by her. How's that going? Ooh, 40 still, years. still working it. Still working it. Still working it. Wow. And that's the story. Do you want to thank a couple of folks? I do want to thank. By the way, you're listening to Truly. Darkly. Creepy. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie, fish-loving Ipema. I haven't killed any fish. I don't believe Quinn you. can't say the same. That can't be true that you've I not killed a fish. I haven't personally killed a fish. You've never gone fishing? Pff, never caught anything. All right. And you've never had a pet goldfish, clearly. Because um, if you had, yeah, but I don't know if I take it. responsibility for that. I was oh, a child. Really? I think my mom I got. Was a child. Where were you? This was I stories about th- children. I didn't throw a fish in a fucking lawn. We don't know that those fish died. <laughs> they could be in the pond I threw the them towards. The optimism I'm seeing from you right now. I've never seen another. I never saw. I've bear, never seen the day any deceased of you. fish. <laughs> Throw another koi on the bobby. I have eaten fish, so there's that. Mm. Murderer. Murderer. Cannibal. Wait, you're not a fish. No. Murderer. murderer. I'm a murderer. I go I'm a, back to I'm the original. Murderer. Okay, right. speaking of murderers, Taylor who are we gonna, what song are we going to murder? Taylor D. Taylor D. Taylor D. Taylor D. You are our maitre d' of the fun times we have in the restaurant of you. Taylor D. Taylor D, are you a pescatarian or, or an aquarian, aquarian or are you just, just Taylor D? D? Taylor D, Taylor D, you are so meaningful to me. Taylor D, Taylor D, ah ha ha he he he. Taylor D, 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 D. That's it. Great. How about... Great, great. I think I love a... I think I... Here's what I'm learning about comedy. I think I love a small pat on the head verbally. Okay. Alrighty, really. I think that's really funny. If mm-hmm. I go, I think it's very good. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, yep. I'm so dismissive, patronizing, mm-hmm. and brilliantly funny. Wow. wow. Comedy. We figured it out. We figured it out. <laughs> episode what? Ha- episode 150. And we figured out comedy. Dude, Good it's for our 150th. Welcome. Oh my you God, man. Actually, we've got two stories and Wait, one more person. Pizza, to yeah, give oh, us a thank him. How about Tiana M? Tiana M. Dial M for murder. Tiana M. Is there a T on ya? Tiana <laughs> Cause you're going out golfing For Tiana fun with your new friends M. Carrie and Quinn Four Yep Uh huh Okay Okie dokie Tiana M I don't know if yours was as long as Taylor D's But Tiana M I'm gonna tell you I think yours might be my favorite You might be her favorite <laughs> one of hey, all Don't tell Taylor, Taylor D. D 
don't tell Taylor D. But between this girls, <laughs> a squirrels. Here's what I have to tell you. It's a story. I'm telling the first story. No, mm, you're telling the first story. Who am I? What's happening to me? You're I turning am... into me. <gasps> oh, you no, want to be I first. I? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we are loops and no alcohol was consumed in this which is why I don't believe you I don't believe you me, left the I, room for a minute I did earlier. I had some of your milk which by the way Quinn milk? you want me to think you went you left the room to drink milk Wait, now Quinn, I, I actually have to talk to you about something I opened the fridge and I know the oat milk that you bought so I went to go look for the brand and that, that's not what was right in front of me what was right in front of me it's an empty milk it was carton. a fucking empty oat milk carton. And I like fucking mad. picked it up and Got I it shook again. it. Crimes of the heart. And I of picked the it up and I shook it. I was like, there's nothing, nothing in here. And I, and I was like, because of Quinn, I'm not going to move this. But you're going to see it. It's right in the front. You left it in the fridge? Absolutely, I did. Matt's now got you're a an taste. accessory. I am not accessory. I'm accessory after the fact. Sure, fine. Oh. But I'm telling you right now, which means I've admitted to it, which means I'm telling the authorities. So actually, no, I'm outing him. I'm an ARC. Let's call 911. And snitches get oat milk stitches. (laughs) So if I got fermented oat milk and I'm shit-based, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I got this information from the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph by Angela Camper. Mamma Mia, Grunge, Sydney Morning Herald. Mamma Mia again. Guess I love Mamma Mia. Here we go again. I still love that story of your your dad being like, I'm just going to circle the car. (laughs) Doesn't like that show. Was it for him? Was it for Larry? But you guys, it's. And then didn't someone propose? And your mom was like, "That's so embarrassing." Yeah. They're right in front. Of me. I love that theater story. So good. See, sometimes theater it doesn't happen on stage. It happens from your very seat. Yes, love that. Okay, continue. Debbie Malone uh, is a former graphic designer, but guess what? She does now. She's mostly a psychic. Okay. Well, I think a lot of graphic design is about sort of telepathically reading what clients want. So I think there is probably like sort of like similar, yes, and Venn diagram. So she's actually (laughs) been able to see and speak with, commune with, I don't know how she'd characterize that, the spirit world since being a baby. But when she was a baby, she didn't know that's what she was doing. Even when she was a kid, she didn't totally get what she was doing. She'd be like, oh, it's a ghost. But it was like uh, Sixth Sense, where so she, she was like, like she's not or a psychic, is it a friend? She's a medium. Are they the same? Uh, oh, I don't know. Really good question. I'm not sure. Let me explain how it works. So first of all, she has a couple of near-death experiences that she thinks helped her to embrace her abilities. Because there is a period yes. of time where she's like, I don't want this gift and I just want it to stop. And she would like try all these ways to get away from it, but it would actually just exacerbate it. And finally she was like, in her words, if you can't beat them, join them. Like I'm Mm going to just lean in. Um, Go ahead. Lean in, Debbie. We love that. So she learns about later in life when she's as part of this leaning in, she's going to learn how to use her skills in more ways. She she learns the art of psychometry, which is soul reading, where you are given an object related to somebody mm-hmm. and it can help you to see something they're going through, like see through their eyes. Okay. Um, she also said that a gray patch formed on the crown of her head where her head chakra is and that it heats up when Whoa. she's talking to the spirit world. Could she's be magic. Corn. Could be eczema. Um, I don't. I don't know. Um, in one of the articles I read, so funny. Um, <laughs> Unicorn magic. Could be eczema. God, that was good. That's oh, comedy, you. baby. Wow, Carrie's calling out all my comedy, and I was very loving fun. it. Um, very fun. She I read like one article where she was like, "I talked to an American Indian spirit guide named Running Horse." Who helps me connect with the dead? I think okay. like a real person. Um I figured. Yeah. But I don't know about that. <laughs> she got eczema. She's got I mean, let's keep going. Yeah. Poor could thing. be real, could be racist. <laughs> I don't know. Like, is that like one of those times where you're trying to didn't we do a story like that in Crime of Lifetime where the woman like made up a yeah. fake yeah. Indian they were talking yeah. to when you were like, that's Come on. fucked. Like yeah. anyway. 
she says it feels like she pops in. I'm going to just read this quote of hers, actually. Sometimes it's like I pop into it, so I'm actually there. Sometimes when I'm on a crime scene, spoiler alert. She, she works in crime? Works, well, I, I don't know if you'd say works. She volunteers? Sure. Without the consent of the... Um, no, she's... She volunteers and some people say, come on aboard. Um, (laughs) She says, sometimes when I'm on a crime scene, I'll see it when it's all been cleaned up. And, you know, it might have been even renovated, but I can actually be standing there and it'll take me back in time. Hmm. And I can be seeing the murderer do the crime. I can also be the victim being murdered or raped or stabbed. It doesn't sound like very fun work. No. I gotta be honest with you. It sounds upsetting. It sounds difficult. It sounds horrible. And the first case that I'm aware of that she worked on, we're gonna like kind of catalog some of the more well-known cases she stepped into. In 1992 um, was the first time she stepped on a board, the murder train. Choo-choo. Yeah. Uh, So in the 80s and 90s, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was uh, a bunch of bodies of backpackers that were turning up in the Belanglo State Forest in Australia. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's called the Backpack Murders, which I'm actually going to cover next week. Wait, I thought you already covered that. No, I never have. The Backpack Murders. So she thinks she's seen things through the eyes of not a victim, but the murderer. So she gets in contact with the detective. Well, actually, her husband is like, I got to get in contact with the detective because I'm seeing this stuff. And her husband's like, you're really going to go, you're going to make an idiot of yourself. Because her husband, who is a builder, is a skeptic and is like, please don't do this. Like, let it be a lesson of like, you can disagree and still, you know, love someone, which is fun. Oh, he's a major eye roll on it. And she says that um, it just helps her because she says if the person closest to me is like rolling their eyes and I can deal with it, then I can deal with anybody's criticism. If the guy that I'm living with is like, "Uh uh-uh, then fuck him. So... um, she doesn't know who this guy is, but she keeps having a vision um, of these backpackers and him behind them and that he has um, a gun and then she'll become one of the girls being pursued by him and feel that fear. And, yeah. and she she basically goes to the detective and lets them know and she, you know, talked to them about what she was seeing on the case. Um, now... The man that did these was a serial killer, Ivan Milat, and he never admitted to doing them. But he was uh, sentenced to seven life sentences with no chance of parole for the murders of a bunch of people. Carolyn Clark, Joanne Walters, James Gibson, Deborah Everest, Simone Schmidl, Gaber Nugbauer, and Anya Habschild. Habschild? Anyway, all these young people, all of them, uh, I think the oldest was like 22. Wow. Anyway, that's a fascinating story in and of itself, and I plan to tell it next week if I can buckle down and learn about it for you. Um, It doesn't sound like a happy story, but when I started reading about it because Debbie had this hand in it, I was like, "You got wow, this is pretty wild. One of the other cases happened in 2009, or I should say the death didn't happen, but her coming aboard did. The detective on this case, Matt Kraft, had been looking at it since 2001 when these bones were discovered. Mm-hmm. And they were like, they got um, an osteo, what are they called? Somebody that does bone study, an osteologist Oste- maybe? Oste- okay. That guy was like, this guy died in the mid-80s. And Matt Craft is, Detective Inspector Matt Craft is at a standstill. And he's like, I don't, like, wouldn't usually put, like, call up a psychic. Right. That's not... Typically, what we do, psychic. Okay, but I guess it wouldn't hurt, and takes her out to where they found the bones, and she's standing there. She's drawn to a tree trunk, close to where those remains were found, Mm -hmm. and she says that the man that died is there with them, and she starts to watch a scene like a movie of these guys pushing a four, three guys pushing a fourth guy outside the warehouse that they're standing wow. at. And she just watches this attack on this man escalate and 
she's like, this is an egg farmer. He's smaller than the other guys. And I think there's been a dispute in the egg industry. And she sees them stab this guy in the chest. And she like, like, it's very visceral. Like she's grabbing her heart. And she watches them dump the body by the tree stump. But she's basically watching it like a movie and then telling this detective, the way it's playing out in front of me is this. In 2010, a six-year-old goes missing named Keisha Wayport. And they give her that practice that I said that's like grabbing the, um, what did I say it was called though? Um, Psychometry. Psychometry, it's so interesting. So she uses psychometry in this case. They give her Adora the Explorer bucket hat. Mm -hmm. They give her an Adora the Explorer bucket hat that was Keisha's. She holds it and she starts to see that Keisha was horribly, horribly abused by her parents, her mom and her stepdad. And she can see a lot of things that the police already, you know, have an understanding of or have suspicions of. But what happens is that she helps them through looking at them. Like she said it was through Google Maps that they were at location and she was looking at Google Maps and she's telling them what she's seeing. And she's like, I smell bushfire. I smell burning. She's like, I think there's BMX bike tracks near where she her body is. Um, I see power lines. And she's like, I don't know about the images of like a suitcase, but I feel that the body is scrunched up. And they do find her inside a suitcase that had been set on fire and had been buried. And she mm-hmm. had all these visions that helped them locate her. Wow. Um, in, I'm not going in um, linear order. order. Yeah. Um, but I have a couple more cases I want to tell you about. One is in the early 2000s, there was a woman named Maria Scott who um, was at a rehab center in the Southern Highlands. And she was obviously trying to make a better life for herself. And rehab was one of these steps. Mm-hmm. And she's only 27 and goes missing. And then in 2003, they find her body decomposing, wrapped in a quilt um, on the grounds of this care care place. Wow. Um, she had been beaten. She had been stabbed. And for four years, they can't figure it out. And they're looking at her ex-boyfriend and then they start to suspect this guy named Mark Brown who was a staff member at the triple care farm that she had been at and he was living really close by I think on site even and the detective had seen Debbie appear on a show called Sensing Murder and he watched it and was like I think I'm gonna ask her about this case and try the psychometry stuff. They give Debbie to hold Maria's bangle, like her bracelet. Mm-hmm. And she had died with it on. So okay. it had been at the scene. And when she's holding it, she starts to explain what she's seen. And the detective said her description of what happened was so close to what we had found. I included it in the coroner's brief. I don't Whoa. know whether he took any notice of it, but she was brilliant. She told us how the body was positioned in the bush where it was found and what Maria was wearing. So Debbie walks out and is like, this is where the body was found. And she's she's in the place where she thinks the murder happened. But like everything has been redone, like she said. Like the yeah. whole, it's been years and it looks different. But she can be like, here's where there was blood. She is like, this is where you'll find the knife that was used to kill her. And she says, I can feel the spirit of the killer walking through my body. And they're like, but she looks totally spooked. And they're like, like, what does that mean? And they were like, she was like, it actually means the person that did this is not alive anymore. And the guy that I just told you about that worked on the grounds, he had committed suicide several years before. So like it just lent credence to this theory they had that he had done it because it it was basically yeah. like she was able to say the guy that did this is dead. And like they were like, look, you can't take any of what she says to court. You can't be like this woman says that he's dead. Like there's the evidence. But it's still 
they were really impressed with her. Mm-hmm. And then the other story I wanted to tell is this mom of two. Okay, so there's this kind of famous Australian podcast that you should listen to or anybody listening that hasn't listened to it should listen to, but I'm sure a lot of you have if you're into true crime. It was called Teacher's Pet. And I listened to it ages ago. And um, I've listened to too many since to remember any details from it, but I remember loving it. And I remember thinking it was really well done. And it was about this mom of two, Lynn Dawson, who goes missing in Sydney. Debbie Malone's contact to Lynn's family happens when they do a special on Lynn on ABC's Australian Story. And she gets put in contact with the family and says, when she watched this show, she just watched part of it, but she felt Lynn was with her. And Lynn was talking to her and communicating with her. And everything she has to say about what Lynn is telling her, what she understands is stuff that the police have technically already concluded. Like she's not helping them, but she's like, the husband did it. And they're like, yep, we kind of know that. Like, for sure, he's the key suspect. And she's like, I know where she's buried. She's buried on their property. They had not found her on the property, but she's like, listen, their marriage was in trouble, which was true. And I just want to give you a quick timeline of this murder because it's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Lynn is married to Chris, and Chris has an affair with their babysitter who is 16 years old and is a student. And he tells his wife, I want her to move into our house because she has like a violent home and she needs to be here. And he moves her into their home and then they eventually, uh, it's not going well, they run away together. And then they come back. Then he and his wife, Lynn, go to marriage counseling. Oh, my God. Then I remember this from Teacher's Pet that the mom, Lynn's mom, is talking to her daughter on the phone and is like, she sounds fucked up. Like, she sounds like she's on drugs or she's drunk, but she's not a big drinker and it doesn't make sense. Um, I think she keeps saying she sounded sozzled, like very Australian, like, Mm -hmm. but... um, then he says he the husband Chris who's definitely spoiler alert a murderer says that he dropped his wife off at a bus stop so that she could go shopping and then she doesn't turn up to meet her mom and then he says that she called him and was like I just need some time to myself liar mm-hmm. and the day after this happens he goes and picks up Joanne the little girl that he's had this affair with and she moves in. And he doesn't report his wife missing till six weeks later. There, he he divorces his wife, who's missing. I don't know. Yeah, he divorces her. Marries this little girl, Joanne. And they're married for, I don't know, maybe like five years or something. And they divorce. When she leaves him and moves away, she says, you, you should search our garden for a body. Like she, I I don't know how much she knows. She's 16. I feel like she's a victim too of him. And so, and she's been missing at this point for, she leaves him in 1990. The wife had gone missing in like 82. Oh my God. In 2000, they find her cardigan that she was wearing no. like on the property. Of course we knew that. On the property, like buried. But they never found her. They never found her body. And Teacher's Pet, like, unpacks that story that I just told you in two seconds in a way that is... It just, like, gave me... Um, what's that other Chris that killed his whole fucking family? It gave me, like, him. Side. Just, like, a crazy, selfish person that, like, meets someone they want to fuck. And is, like, I'll just... I'll just kill literally anyone in my way. And it doesn't matter who they oh are. Oh, my God. And, like... To kill this mom. And you like love her listening to the podcast. And you feel so bad for her because her husband is such a fucking twat and just so selfish. And you feel bad for Joanne who's 16 years old and gets like caught up in this thing with this horrible person. What's interesting is Debbie who is says she's communing with Mm -hmm. Lynn's ghost says that she 
was loving watching Chris get publicly blamed. Like that everyone was like, it's the husband and that he was like squirming and she was like, <laughs> like, just like, yeah, fuck you, dude. Yeah. And I did like that detail a lot. She was in contact with Lynn Dawson's family and they were all like, we believe you. And she was saying that what they had found, like I said, was a cardigan with cut marks in it. And they found it next to the pool. No body was found. But everyone's like, she's obviously dead. What what Debbie says happened is that she believes that Chris put lime on her and a mm. plastic bag over her head. And she's like, I think it was lime. I saw him throw white powder over her body, throw water on her, put a beige-colored shag pile carpet on top, and then cover that up with soil but they've still never see- found her body. And lime dissolves bone, doesn't it? I think so. I was reading the most recent thing on this case, and it does say that they think she was buried on some coastline or something, but they were, or some area. that Basically, the, the point was they were like, we know he could have gone to this area and had time to dispose of the body, but it's too large an area to search. It would be like if you were like, yeah, we know that she's in did he ever get, buried did he ever in get Central conf- Park or something. It's like a big enough area where they're like, we can't excavate this amount of land. Did he, did he ever get in trouble for it? Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. God. Piece of shit. Oh, that's a good question. I'm super curious. Do you mind if I look it up? No, no, no. What is his name? Chris Dawson? Chris Dawson jailed for 24 years. So he was... This is so recent, 2002. The Supreme Court verdict in that case was that Chris Dawson was found guilty of murdering Lynette. Right. And I bet, I bet they didn't find a but body. But he was 74 by the time he was accused That's... of it. It was like it had been like 40 years. Can wow. you believe? This is what the judge said about it. None of the circumstances considered alone can establish his guilt, but when regard is had to their combined force... Yeah. I am left in no doubt. The only rational inference is that Lynette Dawson died on or about the 8th of January, 1982, as a result of a conscious or voluntary act committed by Christopher Dawson. Wow. Isn't that interesting? So it's they never so found the body. That, and I'm sure like the public outcry from this helped him get convicted, right? Like, because otherwise they're, you know, like. Well, this article in The Guardian says like kind of makes it sound like a, the thrust of this was teacher's pet like the oh, podcast cool. was like a huge component like and everybody listened to it and even like it it unearthed i don't i don't know whether i can say this but it sort of unearthed evidence that wasn't always there yeah it and it it's pointed a little out bit of errors like, in the well, police it's a little case bit of like and s- what serial did right like it's mm-hmm. like it you know, the police are, or the detectives on these cases, like they don't always have all of the resources to be doing this. But if you're, if you're investigating these crimes, you know. Yeah. Isn't that amazing though? And to be like, they did this podcast and then like 40 years later, this guy goes to jail. Wow. I guess I'll just end by saying that I I, all of these cases, the backpack murders, the case of this little girl being abused and murdered, this case of Lynette Dawson going missing and never being found, this case of Maria Scott, they're all an episode in their own right. And I might very well cover some of them in their own right. I'm looking into the backpacking murders. I I, I probably wouldn't do Lynette Dawson just because Teacher's, teacher's Pet, pet yeah. is like the be-all you know, it, it, it's end all be all of that story. It's like it'd be like remaking it done, the Godfather yeah. or something, where it's like, what are you doing? Pass. Um, <laughs> just listen to Teacher's Pet. But I, I do think that it's interesting under the uh, banner of like just looking into this woman Debbie Malone and all these cases she's had a hand in in some totally. way, shape, or form, or been involved in. And I think and that, it sounds like there's you believe that she has this power of psychometry. I do. I do believe that and I believe in it. So and not everyone's going to feel that way. But I would say to you, Debbie Malone uh, has a happy, fulfilling life. She has three kids. Regardless of if you believe her or not. Well, I'm like, she's, <laughs> this doesn't seem like she needs it. She does it all pro bono. Um, mm. She does it all 
only when a detective or a family member is like granting it or wishing it. Okay. You know, she doesn't like pester not, people yeah. with like, I'm having these visions. It really struck me as like, it's on offer. And I think she does bring a lot of family members um, a feeling of closure where they might not have one, where like a body might yeah. not be found. And she says, There's this is what there. I see their last moment being. Um, and I'll end with a quote from her. I'm not here to change people's belief systems. However, I would like to open their minds to the possibility that life exists beyond the grave and give victims of crime a voice. Thanks for sharing, Quinn. Yeah. Quinn, I did it again. Oops. Oops she I did it again. again. I, I got another story from the 17 Girls book that I read. You love that book. You I love, love that book. All of the book. cases were so different and so interesting. And this one is dark and twisty um not twisty but just dark but i want to tell it because i found it really interesting i got it from 17 girls midland daily news and new york times i'm talking about the pleasantville cottage school which is located in pleasantville new york and this story is anything but pleasant Pleasant. the cottage school is a boarding school for kids ages seven and up and most of the students that live there are sent there because they have behavioral issues, whether they have been neglected, abused, um, or their behavioral issues are not um, are not able to be sort of handled in a traditional school setting. Kids ages seven or up are sent to this school. The cottage school consists of 16 residential cottages on 175 acres of land, and at around any at around any time, there's about 200 students in this school, which is just so sad because. The fact that they have to make a school like this for kids who have just been hurt Mm -hmm. their whole lives. So obviously these are for kids that really need a lot of assistance, need a lot of help, and um, need a lot of watching. So the counselors at the so the counselors at this school are with them all the time. So they have like a morning counselor, they have school, they have evening counselors, so that someone is always taking is someone always always watching these kids. And the bedrooms don't even have any doors on them because. They need to be able to monitor what the kids are doing at all times. And so Edith Toro is one of those counselors. So she started working at the Pleasantville Cottage School in 1996 when she was 27 years old. And she is putting herself from, she's putting herself through college. So during the day, she works in an office doing accounts payable stuff. And at night, she needs some extra cash. So she needs to take on another job. Um, And she heard about this job as being a counselor um, at the Pleasantville Cottage School. And so she figured this would be a great second job. I can work for accounts payable during the day. And then at night, I can go and sort of be with the kids at night, you know, from like the 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. And this will give me some extra pocket money. Um, She is... A descendant of immigrants and so she figures that she had she had a tough you know childhood the way she describes is that she was pretty low income um and so she figures that with the kids she can relate to them she can offer you know some like positive role modeling and a safe space for them she could love them you know or give them some love where they made where they might not have had love in their lives. So she gets the job and she doesn't have any formal training in dealing with these kids with behavioral issues. And um, But she starts working in Cottage 12. And she is there, like I said, from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And her job is to make sure the girls stay in bed, they don't sneak out, everybody's happy, everybody's safe. And at this time when she starts working there, she doesn't really have any run-ins with the residents. In fact, that's quite the opposite. I think she does have this... Um, she does have this part of her that really wants these kids to feel safe. So she really connects with the girls that are in her care. And she says that they just needed love and she loved them. And, you know, when the girls would get sick or they couldn't sleep, she would let them stay up and read. And sometimes she would let them watch TV with her, but it feels like older sister counselor vibes, um, in a very sweet way. Mm -hmm. By 2001, you know, I think kids come and go, leave. But at that point, um, she's been working in Cottage 12 for about five years. And she's had many girls join the cottage over the years. And the stories of the kids that have joined her cottage is is very sad. So I have a couple of little snippets. So there's um, Angenica. She's 15, and she was sent there um, after being physically abused and sexually abused, and she had attempted suicide multiple times. So this is clearly a kid that needs a lot of help. There's a girl named Crystal. Her her story is just absolutely tragic. 
at four years old, she was living with her parents and her dad pushed her mother out of the sixth story apartment window. And before her mom fell, she grabbed onto her father. And so in one foul swoop, she became an orphan. She lost both of her parents when she was just four years old. Oh, Lydia, she had been in the foster care system since she was just five days old. And so at this point, she's 14 years old, 14, 15, and she's smoking pot. She's um, sneaking out. Um, There are other girls that are in the cabin are uh, Takaya, Erica, Nicole, Mary, LaToya. And I think it becomes obvious that like when these girls join this cottage, they're living with each other. And I think the intention of it is for them to create a community, for them to be sisters to each other, for them to support one another. And you have these counselors coming in, but the girls are all there all the time. So Mm -hmm. they become family. So there's stories of like Mary, she would steal all of the teacher's wallets (laughs) and then she would buy Chinese food to share with her friends, which like, listen, stealing is wrong, but like Chinese food's so right. Chinese food is so right. And I think this idea of like, all we have is each other. I don't care. It's a little bit of like us against the world vibes. Latoya, she helped the girls do their laundry. Erica would help everyone with their chore, with their chores. And, um, Takaya, she would braid everyone's hair. So like they created a community, but while the girls are getting closer and closer and closer and closer, um, they do start breaking rules and Edith is feeling in her late night shift that there is like becoming more and more space between her and the girls, which I I don't think is a problem, except that the students here, um, the kids here come from a pretty tough upbringing. And so I think some of like the rebelliousness, it like peaks to 11. So they start breaking the rules. They would like all set their alarms in the middle of the night. So they would all sneak out and smoke pot. Um, so Edith like knew what they were up to. So she would go around and she'd unplug their alarm clock. So they would sleep through the night. And when that happened and they would wake up the next morning, they'd be pissed. And so instead of her being like a counseling older sister, they viewed her as an enemy and a common enemy. And this strengthened their resolve. And it also put Edith in a really, really bad situation. So they would yell at her. Like it, it feels like it happened so quick where they would start yelling at her and tell her to stop bothering them. They would like say horrible mean things to her. Late one night, August 2001, Edith heard some noises going on in the cottage. So she went into Angenica's room to see what's going on. And Angenica just stared back at her and said, I'm tired of you. And then Angenica snapped, walked over to Edith, screamed, I hate you. So Edith like felt alarmed by this. And so she started to back away. But then Angenica grabbed her and threw her to the ground. And at this point, fortunately, like the co-counselor of the cottage heard what was going on, heard the ruckus and came to her rescue. Campus security showed up and they let Angenica out of the cottage. But as she is being let out, she punches Edith in the face as hard as she can. Jesus. So it like really starts escalating. And and again, like Edith is an evening counselor. Like she started the job. It was going well. And then all of a sudden, like the tides have turned Uh with a capital T. Yeah. And she is still on to their counselor. And again, like she doesn't have any formal training in this situation. Um, and what he doesn't know is she's like, she's in trouble because it's January, 2002. She has lost their respect. She's lost complete control of the situation. Mm -hmm. They start to yell racist chants at her about her Asian heritage. Like she's, yeah. She's up Shit's Creek without a paddle. And I think mob mentality is a very real thing. Yeah. And these girls see one another as family and yeah. emotions run high. And like they're 15 and 16 years old at this point. And like it's it's brewing and it's not going to be good. I'm about to depict some like pretty violent acts. So if that bothers you, please skip ahead. It's Thursday, February 7th, 2002. The girls, like I said, are 15, 16 years old, and Edith gets to work at around 11. And so it's like a changing of the guard, right? So the Mm -hmm. day counselor, her co-counselor, is leaving for the day. And so 20 minutes later, Edith goes upstairs to check on the girls. So she doesn't have a Mm co-counselor there at the time. She's by herself. 
So she goes to check on the girls and she sees Angenica charge at her out of Mary's room and head straight towards her. Edith recalls seeing Angenica's eyes and seeing total hatred. So Edith knows this is not a good situation. So she turns to run away and she realizes that like she's by herself in this cottage. This is a 175 acre place. Like she doesn't have anyone that's going to save her if she's in trouble. So she's like booking it down the stairs, but Angenica catches up to Edith at the bottom and begins to punch her mm-hmm. in the head. Edith is, she's fight or flight. She's flighting mm-hmm. as fast as she can, but the other girls start to catch up after she's punching in her head. So the other seven girls gather to watch Angenica hitting Edith. Edith begins to beg Angenica to stop hitting her and she's trying to appeal to the other girls but the other girls are getting more excited and they start yelling fuck her up and this eggs Angenica on who is sort of the ringleader Uh as it appears in the situation so Angenica grabs Edith's hair and then her and Nicole drag her back to the living room Takaya starts kicking her in the back and Edith, it's all happening so fast and she's so confused and she's she's freezing because she can't fight back. She knows she's outnumbered. She knows like, I also think too is, I mean, she never says this, but it also seems like she's an adult and these are kids. Like, what is the right thing? You know what I mean? Like, you don't lay a hand on a kid. Ugh. And also there's seven of them attacking mm-hmm. her at the same time. And she says... I thought one wrong move could cost me my life. Yeah. They're beating her. And then one of the girls grabs a bottle of rubbing alcohol, splashes it in Edith's face. They yell, burn the bitch. Latoya yells, burn the bitch. And hands Angenica a lighter. She flicks it on. Edith's skin begins to burn. She's able to get up, run to get a blanket to extinguish the flames on her face. But at this point, like... She has such severe burns. And then Angenica shoves Edith down into the basement and says, we're going to kill you tonight, little by little. We're going to make you suffer. And it feels like, and this is editorializing, obviously, but it feels like every bit of pain these girls experienced in their life, they are, it is coursing through their veins and they are attacking their helpless counselor who did nothing but show Mm -hmm. up. Erica then grabs the bleach and throws it in Edith's burned face. Edith said the pain was absolutely unbearable. She just thought to herself, just kill me, just end it. They drag her upstairs, and at this point, it's 12.30. So it's been like almost, it's been over an hour of torture for Mm -hmm. Edith. And they see a pair of headlights in the window. Mary shouts, someone in the staff is on their way over. The girls panic and they flee. Edith, though, is like, I think, you know, she has, like, her skin is peeling off. She has blisters everywhere. I think, obviously, she's disoriented. She's just survival mechanism. So while the girls are panicking and stuff, she takes this moment and she books it out the back door and she starts running towards the car. And the day counselor, who's I don't know how they got back or whatnot, but is coming upon this scene going, what the fuck just happened, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, how do you even comprehend this? And Edith is just yelling, they're trying to kill me, they're trying to kill me. Edith is immediately raced to Westchester Medical Center. The police are notified, but the girls have fled into the night. Um, Angenica, Latoya, and Takaya, they all hid in a, low, a nearby boys' cottage, Nicole and Lydia ran behind the school gym and all of them were caught and arrested very quickly. The other three, Erica, Crystal, and Mary, they go to a nearby bar and they're able to hitch a ride to Queens where Erica's boyfriend lives and they are found after five weeks of searching for them Mm -hmm. and they're arrested. Edith miraculously survives this attempt uh, to kill her. She um, she spends nine days recovering in the hospital. Her chest, her face is horribly bruised. She has welts all over her body, bruises all over her body. Um, but she spends nine days in the hospital recovering mm-hmm. until she can, until she's, ex- um, 
not exchanged until she's released. Exchanged. What, what am I thinking of? There's like a one. Ex- no, but she's exchanged. Jesus. Um, expelled. Ex. What is it? Discharged. Yes. She's ninety. That's it's it. Not discharged. Exchanged. Not exchanged. And that's and that's actually good job. So she. Three weeks later, she goes back to work at her day job and she says she comes back to work and there's like flowers and stuff. And, you know, like, how do you recount? Yeah. Just and the PTSD would be so the much. PTSD. And she, I'm sure she thought she was going to die. She absolutely did. No question. And again, like, it's so sad, right? Like, it's so sad. Everything about it. Everything about it is so sad. And I, and I think the girls are responsible they're 15 16 years old but i also am like these poor girls have also been hurt so so badly badly in their lives and i and their children their kids their kids um and they have no one telling them they're looking up to each other it's the blind leading the blind it's like they don't have a family and i think like earlier in the story when edith talks about like the girls she was like able to like create bonds and i'm wondering if she like started when they were younger mm-hmm. and kids come and go and it's like sometimes you just get like the bad the bad mesh of people you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's like the wrong combination of these girls sort of like fueled this hatred um but edith doesn't want to talk about it you know she's which again is like mm-hmm. it's also so hard right like she she's trying to get through it, but is dealing with such a, the trauma of that. Eight months later after the assault, all eight girls plead guilty. They um, plead guilty to assault for trying to disfigure and seriously and permanently harm. And then I read in the New York Times article a little bit different. There was five were allowed to plead guilty. Three of them were granted youthful offender status and faced sentences of about one year, but their, I think, records could be expunged. But I think it probably depended on the age. I imagine like not all of them participated. Mm-hmm. Some of them stood by, obviously. They all had a hand in this attack. It's December 2002. It's, what, 10 months after the incident. And before the sentencing hearing, Edith writes a letter to each of them. And her plan is she wants to read them and present it to the court as like a victim impact statement. She didn't have any contact with any of the girls since the attack. And she wanted to confront them and make peace with what happened. I think like she didn't, it sounds like she really didn't talk about it much with anyone, wrote these letters and was going to read it in court. And while she's reading it in court, she starts with her letter to Anjanika and she can't get through it. Mm -hmm. Like the tears come and she's, she's a puddle. She can't, she Mm -hmm. can't. And so her lawyer picks up her letter and. She says, I hope that you show some consideration and explain why I became a victim of your rage. Like the 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 incredulousness of like, I don't know what I did to deserve that. And to know like you didn't do anything mm-hmm. to deserve that. And Anjanika said, you know, I know I was wrong. I don't expect her to forgive me. She said with a shrug is how they mm-hmm. describe her. Yeah. She also says, or Edith also said in her letter that she was just doing her job, that She's going to be scarred for life, both emotionally and physically. All of the girls receive various um, prison sentences between one and 10 years. And Janika, as the leader, she gets the longest sentence of three and a half years to 10 years. And Edith is still, you know, I think she still struggles based Mm -hmm. on when this article came out, which was like not long after, which was like two years after. Edith talks about still having bouts of depression and she's in therapy and she's trying to understand that it's not her fault. The quote that she said that I just thought was in was something that sort of encapsulates everything that I think I'm feeling is the girls didn't hate me so much. They hated everything. They just got it with me that night because I was the weakest. They didn't have a parent to love them or to tell them what is good and bad. But just because you don't have a family doesn't mean you can attack somebody. It's just it's it's a horrible situation and I wanted to tell this story because I think like I'm it's like such a why did I want to tell this story I don't know why I wanted to tell this story it was really sad it was it's a really sad story it you sucks. want to carry it alone you heard it and you didn't want to carry it I don't want to carry it alone Carrie no. didn't want to carry it I didn't want to carry it alone and I and I also am like the resilience of Edith who like fought for her life all while like 
trying to protect herself. And I think like the compassion that she shows these girls is like nobody loved them, nobody taught them good and bad, Mm -hmm. you know, and her just trying to heal herself. And it's like, you know, any one of these girls could have had like a positive influence in their life and not have found their way here. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like any one of these kids. Yeah, it's the perfect storm. It's a perfect storm. It's so senseless. It's so senseless. And Edith is going to be, you know, for the rest of her life. Ugh. She's scarred from it. Horrible. Yeah. So that's the story of the Pleasantville Cottage School. Not, you're right. Not very pleasant. I do not want to go to that school. No. But I also understand, like... I don't think anyone's going to make you. I don't think anyone's going to make me. But I also understand, like, you know, why people in that school need to be loved. Yeah. You know? Like, there are... It's just so sad. It's like it's like a victim full. It's a full of victim crime. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, should I look up a Jack Handy quote? Like, how do we get out of here? You know what Um, I mean. What do we get out? Let me think about what are we. Oh, what do you have to look forward to this week? What do I have? I'm going back to. uh, I'm going back to um, Eldred. Yes, and I'm going to be this weekend. I'm going to another hot tub. I'm going to be in Michigan. My friend's sister is getting married and I, we booked, I'm going with my two friends and, um, I'm so excited to see them. And we booked a place with a hot tub, which to me is like, if there is a possibility Mm -hmm. for a hot tub, I'm going to read you a Jack Candy quote. Anyway, do it. She's trying to figure out which one folks (laughs) really good. They're all really good. I bet the main reason the police keep people away from a plane crash is they don't want anybody walking in and laying down on the crash stuff. And then when somebody comes up, act like they just woke up and go, what was that? (laughs) (laughs) How about this one? (laughs) I'd rather be rich than stupid. That's not a Jack Candy quote. That's an R quote. It is. It's in here. I really love that. I'd rather be rich than stupid. That's so funny. You know what? Honestly, Jack Candy, same. What is it that makes a complete stranger dive into an icy river to save a solid gold baby? Maybe we'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) It's good, right? I really like that. He's just so good. He really warms me. I like him. All On right. that note, see you next time. See you. Avita Sen. Bye.